Part 2, Chapter 9, Section 101 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 9, Miracles of Jesus. Section 101, Anecdotes Having Relation to the Sea. As in general, at least according to the representations of the three first evangelists, the country around the Galilean Sea was the chief theatre of the ministry of Jesus. So a considerable number of his miracles have an immediate reference to the sea. One of this class, the miraculous draught of fishes granted to Peter, has already presented itself for our consideration. Besides this, there are the miraculous stilling of the storm which had arisen on the sea while Jesus slept, in the three synoptists, Matthew, Mark, and John, the summary of most of those, the walking of Jesus on the sea, likewise during a storm, in incidents which the appendix to the fourth gospel places after the resurrection, and lastly, the anecdote of the coin that was to be angled for by Peter, in Matthew. The first-named narrative, Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 and following, and parallel passages, is intended, according to the evangelist's own words, to represent Jesus to us as him whom the winds and the sea obey. Thus, to follow out the gradation in the miraculous which has been hitherto observed, it is here presupposed not merely that Jesus could act on the human mind and living body in a psychological and magnetic manner, or with a revivifying power on the human organism when it was forsaken by vitality. Nay, not merely as in the history of the draught of fishes, earlier examined, that he could act immediately with determinative power on irrational yet animated existences, but that he could act thus even on inanimate nature. The possibility of finding a point of union between the alleged supernatural agency of Jesus and the natural order of phenomena here absolutely ceases. Here, at the latest, there is an end to miracles in the wider and now more favored sense, and we come to those which must be taken in the narrowest sense or to the miracle proper. The purely supernaturalistic view is therefore the first to suggest itself. Olhausen has justly felt that such a power over external nature is not essentially connected with the destination of Jesus for the human race and for the salvation of man. Whence he was led to place the natural phenomenon, which is here controlled by Jesus, in a relation to sin, and therefore to the office of Jesus. Storms, he says, are the spasms and convulsions of nature, and as such the consequences of sin, the fearful effects of which are seen even on the physical side of existence. But it is only that limited observation of nature, which, in noting the particular, forgets the general, that can regard storms, tempests, and similar phenomena, which, in connection with the whole, have their necessary place and beneficial influence. 
as evils and departure from original law, and a theory of the world in which it is seriously upheld that before the fall there were no storms and tempests, as, on the other hand, no beasts of prey and poisonous plants, partakes, one does not know whether to say, of the fanatical or of the childish. But to what purpose, if the above explanation will not hold, could Jesus be gifted with such a power over nature? As a means of awakening faith in him, it was inadequate and superfluous, because Jesus found individual adherence without any demonstration of a power of this kind, and general acceptance, even this did not procure him. As little can it be regarded as a type of the original dominion of man over external nature, a dominion which he is destined to reattain. For the value of this dominion consists precisely in this, that it is a mediate one, achieved by the progressive reflection and the united efforts of ages, not an immediate and magical dominion, which costs no more than a word. Hence, in relation to that part of nature of which we are here speaking, the compass and the steam vessel are an incomparably truer realization of man's dominion over the ocean than the alline of the waves by a mere word. But the subject has another aspect, since the dominion of man over nature is not merely external and practical, but also imminent or theoretical. That is, man, even when externally he is subjected to the might of the elements, yet is not internally conquered by them. But, in the conviction that the powers of physical nature can only destroy in him that which belongs to his physical existence, is elevated in the self-certainty of the spirit above the possible destruction of the body. This spiritual power, it is said, was exhibited by Jesus, for he slept tranquilly in the midst of the storm, and when awakened by his trembling disciples, inspired them with courage by his words. But for courage to be shown, real danger must be apprehended. Now, for Jesus, supposing him to be conscious of an immediate power over nature, danger could in no degree exist. Therefore, he could not here give any proof of this theoretical power. In both respects, the natural explanation would find only the conceivable and the desirable attributed to Jesus in the evangelical narrative, namely, on the one hand, an intelligent observation of the state of the weather, and, on the other, exalted courage in the presence of real peril. When we read that Jesus commanded the winds, we are to understand simply that he made some remark on the storm, or some exclamations at its violence, and his calming of the sea we are to regard only as a prognostication founded on the observation of certain signs that the storm would soon subside. His address to the disciples is said to have proceeded, like the celebrated saying of Caesar, 
from the confidence that a man who was to leave an impress on the world's history could not so lightly be cut short in his career by an accident that those who were in the ship regarded the subsidence of the storm as the effect of the words of jesus proves nothing for jesus nowhere confirms their inference but neither does he disapprove it although he must have observed the impression which in consequence of that inference the result had made on the people he must therefore as venturini actually supposes have designedly refrained from shaking their high opinion of his miraculous power in order to attach them to him the more firmly but setting this altogether aside was it likely that the natural presages of the storm should have been better understood by jesus who had never been occupied on the sea than by peter james and john who had been at home on it from their youth upwards it remains then taking the incident as it is narrated by the evangelists we must regard it as a miracle but to raise this from an exegetical result to a real fact is according to the above remarks extremely difficult whence there arises a suspicion against the historical character of the narrative viewed more nearly however and taking matthew's account as the basis there is nothing to object to the narrative until the middle of verse twenty six it might really have happened that jesus in one of his frequent passages across the galilean sea was sleeping when a storm arose that the disciples awaked him with alarm while he calm and self-possessed said to them why are ye fearful o ye of little faith what follows the commanding of the waves which mark with his well-known fondness for such authoritative words reproduces as if he were giving the exact words of jesus in a greek translation might have been added in the propagation of the anecdote from one to another there was an inducement to attribute to jesus such a command over the winds and the sea not only in the opinion entertained of his person but also in certain features of the old testament history here in poetical descriptions of the passage of the israelites through the red sea jehovah is designated as he who rebuked the red sea psalm 106 verse 9 septuagint compare with nahum chapter 1 verse 4 so that it retreated now as the instrument in this partition of the red sea was moses it was natural to ascribe to his great successor the messiah a similar function accordingly we actually find from rabbinical passages that a drying up of the sea was expected to be wrought by god in the messianic times doubtless through the agency of the messiah as formerly through that of moses that instead of drying up the sea jesus is said only to produce a calm may be explained on the supposition that the storm and the composure exhibited by jesus on the occasion were historical as a consequence of the mythical having combined itself with this historical element 
for as according to this jesus and his disciples were on board a ship a drying up of the sea would have been out of place still it is altogether without any sure precedent that a mythical addition should be engrafted on the stem of a real incident so as to leave the latter totally unmodified and there is one feature even in the part hitherto assumed to be historical which more narrowly examined might just as probably have been invented by the legend as have really happened that jesus before the storm breaks out is sleeping and even when it arises does not immediately awake is not his voluntary deed but chance it is this very chance however which alone gives the scene its full significance for jesus sleeping in the storm is by the contrast which he presents a not less emblematical image than ulysses sleeping when after so many storms he was about to land on his island home now that jesus really slept at the time that a storm broke out may indeed have happened by chance in one case out of ten but in the nine cases also when this did not happen and jesus only showed himself calm and courageous during the storm i am inclined to think that the legend would so far have understood her interest that as she had represented the contrast of the tranquillity of jesus with the raging of the elements to the intellect by means of the words of jesus so she would depict it for the imagination by means of the image of jesus sleeping in the ship or as mark has it on a pillow in the hinder part of the ship if then that which may possibly have happened in a single case must certainly have been invented by the legend in nine cases the expositor must in reason prepare himself for the undeniable possibility that we have before us one of the nine cases instead of that single case if then it be granted that nothing further remains as an historical foundation for our narrative than that jesus exhorted his disciples to show the firm courage of faith in opposition to the raging waves of the sea it is certainly possible that he may once have done this in a storm at sea but just as he said if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed ye may say to this mountain be thou removed and cast into the sea matthew chapter 21 verse 21 or to this tree be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea luke chapter 17 verse 6 so he might not merely on the sea but in any situation make use of the figure that to him who has faith winds and waves shall be obedient at a word if we now take into account what even olhausen remarks and schneckenberger has shown that the contest of the kingdom of god with the world was in the early times of christianity commonly compared to a voyage through a stormy ocean we see at once how easily legend might come to frame such a narrative as the above on the suggestions afforded by the parallel between the messiah and moses the expressions of jesus 
and the conception of him as the pilot who steers the little vessel of the kingdom of god through the tumultuous waves of the world setting this aside however and viewing the matter only generally in relation to the idea of a miracle worker we find a similar power over storms and tempests ascribed for example to pythagoras we have a more complicated anecdote connected with the sea wanting in luke but contained in john chapter six verse sixteen and following as well as in matthew chapter fourteen verse twenty two and following and mark chapter six verse forty five and following where a storm overtakes the disciples when sailing by night and jesus appears to their rescue walking towards them on the sea here again the storm subsides in a marvellous manner on the entrance of jesus into the ship but the peculiar difficulty of the narrative lies in this that the body of jesus appears so entirely exempt from a law which governs all other human bodies without exception namely the law of gravitation that he not only does not sink under the water but does not even dip into it on the contrary he walks erect on the waves as on firm land if we are to represent this to ourselves we must in some way or other conceive the body of jesus as an ethereal phantom according to the opinion of the doketai a conception which the fathers of the church condemned as irreligious and which we must reject as extravagant olhausen indeed says that in a superior corporeality impregnated with the powers of a higher world such an appearance need not create surprise but these are words to which we can attach no definite idea if the spiritual activity of jesus which refined and perfected his corporeal nature instead of being conceived as that which more and more completely emancipated his body from the psychical laws of passion and sensuality is understood as if by its means the body was exempted from the physical law of gravity this is a materialism of which as in a former case it is difficult to decide whether it be more fantastical or childish if jesus did not sink in the water he must have been a spectre and the disciples in our narrative would not have been wrong in taking him for one we must also recollect that on his baptism in the river jordan jesus did not exhibit this property but was submerged like an ordinary man now had he at that time also the power of sustaining himself on the surface of the water and only refrained from using it and did he thus increase or reduce his specific gravity by an act of his will or are we to suppose as olhausen would perhaps say that at the time of his baptism he had not attained so far in the process of subtilizing his body as to be freely borne up by the water and that he only reached this point at a later period these are questions which olhausen justly calls absurd nevertheless they serve to open a glimpse into the abyss of absurdities in which we are involved by the supernaturalistic interpretation and particularly by that 
which this theologian gives of the narrative before us. To avoid these, the natural explanation has tried many expedients. The boldest is that of Paulus, who maintains that the text does not state that Jesus walked on the water, and that the miracle in this passage is nothing but a philological mistake, since perep at ein ep i tes thalassis is analogous to the expression strapop ed en ein ep i tes thalassis, Exodus chapter 14, verse 2, and signifies to walk, as the other to encamp over the sea, that is, on the elevated seashore. According to the meaning of the words taken separately, this explanation is possible. Its real applicability in this particular instance, however, must be determined by the context. Now, this represents the disciples as having rowed twenty-five or thirty furlongs, John, or as being in the midst of the sea, Matthew and Mark. And then it is said, that Jesus came towards the ship, and so near that he could speak to them. How could he do this if he remained on the shore? To obviate this objection, Paulus conjectures that the disciples in that stormy night probably only skirted the shore. But the words, in the midst of the sea, though not, we grant, to be construed with mathematical strictness, yet even taken according to the popular mode of speaking, are too decidedly opposed to such a supposition for it to be worth our further consideration. But this mode of interpretation encounters a fatal blow in the passage where Matthew says of Peter that, having come down out of the ship, he walked on the water, verse 29. For as it is said shortly after that Peter began to sink, walking merely on the shore, cannot have been intended here. And if not here, neither can it have been intended in the former instance relating to Jesus, the expressions being substantially the same. But if Peter, in his attempt to walk upon the waters, began to sink, may we not still suppose that both he and Jesus merely swam in the sea? or waded through its shallows? Both these suppositions have actually been advanced. But the act of wading must have been expressed by peripatain ep i tes thalassis, and had that of swimming been intended, one or other of the parallel passages would certainly have substituted the precise expression for the ambiguous one. Besides, it must be alike impossible either to swim from twenty-five to thirty furlongs in a storm, or to wade to about the middle of the sea, which certainly was beyond the shallows. A swimmer could not easily be taken for a spectre. And lastly, the prayer of Peter for special permission to imitate Jesus, and his failure in it from want of faith, point to something supernatural. The reasoning on which the natural mode of interpretation rests here, as elsewhere, has been enunciated by Paulus in connection with this passage in a form which reveals its fundamental error 
in a particularly happy manner. The question, he says, in such cases, is always this. Which is more probable, that the evangelical writer should use an expression not perfectly exact, or that there should be a departure from the course of nature? It is evident that the dilemma is falsely stated, and should rather be put thus. Is it more probable that the author should express himself inaccurately, rather in direct contradiction to the supposed sense, or that he should mean to narrate a departure from the course of nature? For only what he means to narrate is the immediate point of inquiry. What really happened is, even according to the distinction of the judgment of a writer from the fact that he states, on which Paulus everlastingly insists, an altogether different question. Because, according to our views, a departure from the course of nature cannot have taken place, it by no means follows that a writer belonging to the primitive age of Christianity could not have credited and narrated such a case, and therefore to abolish the miraculous, we must not explain it away from the narrative, but rather inquire whether the narrative itself, either in whole or in part, must not be excluded from the domain of history. In relation to this inquiry, first of all, each of our three accounts has peculiar features, which, in an historical light, are suspicious. The most striking of these features is found in Mark verse 48, where he says of Jesus that he came walking on the sea towards the disciples, and would have passed by them, but that he was constrained by their anxious cries to take notice of them. With justice, Fritzsche interprets Mark's meaning to be, that it was the intention of Jesus, supported by divine power, to walk across the whole sea as on firm land. But with equal justice, Paulus asks, could anything have been more useless and extravagant than to perform so singular a miracle without any eye to witness it? We must not, however, on this account, with the later theologian, interpret the words of Mark as implying a natural event, namely, that Jesus, being on the land, was going to pass by the disciples who were sailing in a ship not far from the shore. For the miraculous interpretation of the passage is perfectly accordant with the spirit of our evangelist. Not contented with the representation of his informant, that Jesus, on this occasion, adopted this extraordinary mode of progress with special reference to his disciples, he aims by the above addition to convey the idea of walking on the water being so natural and customary with Jesus, that, without any regard to the disciples, whenever a sheet of water lay in his road, he walked across it as unconcernedly as if it had been dry land. But such a mode of procedure, if habitual with Jesus, would presuppose most decidedly a subtilization of his body, such as Olhausen supposes. It would therefore presuppose what is inconceivable. Hence, this particular of Marx presents itself as one of the most striking 
among those by which the second evangelist now and then approaches the exaggerations of the apocryphal gospels in matthew the miracle is in a different manner not so much heightened as complicated for there not only jesus but peter also makes an experiment in walking on the sea not indeed altogether successful this trait is rendered suspicious by its intrinsic character as well as by the silence of the two other narrators immediately on the word of jesus and in virtue of the faith which he has in the beginning peter actually succeeds in walking on the water for some time and only when he is assailed by fear and doubt does he begin to sink what are we to think of this admitting that jesus by means of his etherealized body could walk on the water how could he command peter who was not gifted with such a body to do the same or if by a mere word he could give the body of peter a dispensation from the law of gravitation can he have been a man and if a god would he thus lightly cause a suspension of natural laws at the caprice of a man or lastly are we to suppose that faith has the power instantaneously to lessen the specific gravity of the body of a believer faith is certainly said to have such a power in the figurative discourse of jesus just referred to according to which the believer is able to remove mountains and trees into the sea and why not also himself to walk on the sea the moral that as soon as faith falters power ceases could not be so aptly presented by either of the two former figures as by the latter in the following form as long as a man has faith he is able to walk unharmed on the unstable sea but no sooner does he give way to doubt than he sinks unless christ extend to him a helping hand the fundamental thought then of matthew's episodical narrative is that peter was too confident in the firmness of his faith that by its sudden failure he incurred great danger but was rescued by jesus a thought which is actually expressed in luke chapter twenty two verse thirty one and following where jesus says to simon satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat but i have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not these words of jesus have reference to peter's coming denial this was the occasion when his faith on the strength of which he had just before offered to go with jesus to prison and to death would have wavered had not the lord by his intercession procured him new strength if we add to this the above-mentioned habit of the early christians to represent the persecuting world under the image of a turbulent sea we cannot fail with one of the latest critics to perceive in the description of peter courageously volunteering to walk on the sea soon however sinking from faint-heartedness but borne up by jesus an allegorical and mythical representation of that trial of faith which this disciple who imagined himself so strong met so weakly 
and which higher assistance alone enabled him to surmount. But the account of the fourth gospel also is not wanting in peculiar features which betray an unhistorical character. It has ever been a cross to harmonists that while, according to Matthew and Mark, the ship was only in the middle of the sea when Jesus reached it, according to John, it immediately after arrived at the opposite shore, that while, according to the former, Jesus actually entered into the ship, and the storm thereupon subsided, according to John, on the contrary, the disciples did indeed wish to take him into the ship, but their actually doing so was rendered superfluous by their immediate arrival at the place of disembarkation. It is true that here also abundant methods of reconciliation have been found. First, the words, they wished, added to, to receive, is said to be a mere redundancy of expression, then to signify simply the joyfulness of the reception, as if it had been said, et elontes el abon, then to describe the first impression which the recognition of Jesus made on the disciples, his reception into the ship, which really followed, not being mentioned. But the sole reason for such an interpretation lies in the unauthorized comparison with the synoptical accounts. In the narrative of John, taken separately, there is no ground for it, nay, it is excluded. For the succeeding sentence, immediately the ship was at the land whither they went, though it is united not by de, but by kai, can nevertheless only be taken antithetically, in the sense that the reception of Jesus into the ship, notwithstanding the readiness of the disciples, did not really take place, because they were already at the shore. In consideration of this difference, Chrysostom held that there were two occasions on which Jesus walked on the sea. He says that on the second occasion, which John narrates, Jesus did not enter into the ship in order that the miracle might be greater. This view we may transfer to the evangelist and say, if Mark has aggrandized the miracle by implying that Jesus intended to walk past the disciples across the entire sea, so John goes yet farther, for he makes him actually accomplish this design, and without being taken into the ship, arrive at the opposite shore. Not only, however, does the fourth evangelist seek to aggrandize the miracle before us, but also to establish and authenticate it more securely. According to the synoptists, the sole witnesses were the disciples, who saw Jesus come towards them, walking on the sea. John adds to these few immediate witnesses a multitude of mediate ones, namely, the people who were assembled when Jesus performed the miracle of the loaves and fishes. These, when on the following morning they no longer find Jesus on the same spot, make the calculation that Jesus cannot have crossed the ship by sea, for he did not get into the same boat with the disciples, and no other boat was there. Verse 22. While, 
that he did not go by land is involved in the circumstance that the people when they have forthwith crossed the sea find him on the opposite shore verse twenty five whither they could hardly have arrived by land in the short interval thus in the narrative of the fourth gospel as all natural means of passage are cut off from jesus there remains for him only a supernatural one and this consequence is in fact inferred by the multitude in the astonished question which they put to jesus when they find him on the opposite shore rabbi when camest thou hither as this chain of evidence for the miraculous passage of jesus depends on the rapid transportation of the multitude the evangelist hastens to procure other boats for their service verse twenty three now the multitude who take ship verse twenty two verse twenty six and following are described as the same whom jesus had miraculously fed and these amounted according to verse ten to about five thousand if only a fifth nay a tenth of these passed over there needed for this as the author of the probabilia has justly observed a whole fleet of ships especially if they were fishing boats but even if we suppose them vessels of freight these would not at all have been bound for capernaum or even changed their destination for the sake of accommodating the crowd this passage of the multitude therefore appears only to have been invented on the one hand to confirm by their evidence the walking of jesus on the sea on the other as we shall presently see to gain an opportunity for making jesus who according to the tradition had gone over to the opposite shore immediately after the multiplication of the loaves speak yet further with the multitude on the subject of this miracle after pruning away these offshoots of the miraculous which are peculiar to the respective narratives the main stem is still left namely the miracle of jesus walking on the sea for a considerable distance with all its attendant improbabilities as above exposed but the solution of these accessory particulars as it led us to discover the causes of their unhistorical origin has facilitated the discovery of such causes for the main narrative and has thereby rendered possible the solution of this also we have seen by an example already adduced that it was usual with the hebrews and early christians to represent the power of god over nature a power which the human spirit when united to him was supposed to share under the image of supremacy over the raging waves of the sea in the narrative of the exodus this supremacy is manifested by the sea being driven out of its place at a sign so that a dry path is opened to the people of god in its bed in the new testament narrative previously considered the sea is not removed out of its place but only so far laid to rest that jesus and his disciples can cross it in safety in their ship in the anecdote before us the sea still remains in its place as in the second but there is this point of similarity to the first that the passage is made on foot not by ship 
yet as a necessary consequence of the other particular on the surface of the sea not in its bed still more immediate inducements to develop in such a manner the conception of the power of the miracle worker over the waves may be found both in the old testament and in the opinions prevalent in the time of jesus among the miracles of elisha it is not only told that he divided the jordan by a stroke of his mantle so that he could go through it dry shod second kings chapter two verse fourteen but also that he caused a piece of iron which had fallen into the water to swim second kings chapter six verse six an ascendancy over the law of gravitation which it would be imagined the miracle worker might be able to evince in relation to his own body also and thus to exhibit himself as it is said of jehovah job chapter nine verse eight septuagint walking upon the sea as upon a pavement in the time of jesus much was told of miracle workers who could walk on the water apart from conceptions exclusively grecian the greco-oriental legend feigned that the hyperborean abaris possessed an arrow by means of which he could bear himself up in the air and thus traverse rivers seas and abysses and popular superstition attributed to many wonder-workers the power of walking on water hence the possibility that with all these elements and inducements existing a similar legend should be formed concerning jesus appears incomparably stronger than that a real event of this kind should have occurred and with this conclusion we may dismiss the subject the manifestation of jesus at the sea of tiberius narrated john chapter twenty one has so striking a resemblance to the sea anecdotes hitherto considered that although the fourth gospel places it in the period after the resurrection we are induced as in an earlier instance we brought part of it under notice in connection with the narrative of peter's draught of fishes so here to institute a comparison between its other features and the narrative of jesus walking on the sea in both cases jesus is perceived by the disciples in the twilight of early morning only in the latter instance he does not as in the former walk on the sea but stands on the shore and the disciples are in consternation not because of a storm but because of the fruitlessness of their fishing in both instances they are afraid of him in the one they take him for a spectre in the other not one of them ventures to ask him who he is knowing that it is the lord but especially the scene with peter peculiar to the first gospel has its corresponding one in the present passage as there when jesus walking on the sea makes himself known to his disciples peter entreats permission to go to him on the water so here as soon as jesus is recognized standing on the shore peter throws himself into the water that he may reach him the shortest way by swimming thus that which in the earlier narrative was the miraculous act of walking on the sea becomes in the one before us in relation to jesus the simple act of standing on the shore in relation to peter the natural act of swimming 
so that the later history sounds almost like a rationalistic paraphrase of the former and there have not been wanting those who have maintained that at least the anecdote about peter in the first gospel is a traditional transformation of the incident in john chapter twenty one verse seven into a miracle modern criticism is restrained from extending this conjecture to the anecdote of jesus walking on the sea by the simple fact that the supposed apostolic fourth gospel itself has this feature in the earlier narrative chapter six verse sixteen and following but from our point of view it appears quite possible that the history in question either came to the author of this gospel in the one form and to the other of the appendix in the other or that it came to the one author of both in a double form and was inserted by him in separate parts of his narrative meanwhile if the two histories are to be compared we ought not at once to assume that the one john chapter twenty one is the original the other matthew chapter fourteen and parallel passages the secondary we must first ask which of the two bears intrinsic marks of one or the other character now certainly if we adhere to the rule that the more miraculous narrative is the later that in john chapter twenty one appears in relation to the manner in which jesus approaches the disciples and in which peter reaches jesus to be the original but this rule is connected in the closest manner with another namely that the more simple narrative is the earlier the more complex one the later as the conglomerate is a later formation than the homogeneous stone and according to this rule the conclusion is reversed and the narrative in john chapter twenty one is the more traditional for in it the particulars mentioned above are interwoven with the miraculous draught of fishes while in the earlier narrative they form in themselves an independent whole it is indeed true that a greater whole may be broken up into smaller parts but such fragments have not at all the appearance of the separate narratives of the draught of fishes and the walking on the sea since these on the contrary leave the impression of being each a finished whole from this interweaving with the miracle of the draught of fishes to which we must add the circumstance that the entire circle of events turns upon the risen jesus who is already in himself a miracle it is apparent how contrary to the general rule the oft-named particulars could lose their miraculous character since by their combination with other miracles they were reduced to mere accessories to a sort of natural scaffolding if then the narrative in john chapter twenty one is entirely secondary its historical value has already been estimated with that of the narratives which furnished its materials if before we proceed further we take a retrospective of the series of sea anecdotes hitherto examined we find it is true that the two extreme anecdotes are altogether dissimilar the one relating mainly to fishing the other to a storm nevertheless on a proper arrangement 
each of them appears to be connected with the preceding by a common feature the narrative of the call of the fishers of men matthew chapter 4 verse 18 and following and parallel passages opens the series that of peter's draught of fishes luke chapter 5 verse 1 and following has in common with this the saying about the fishers of men but the fact of the draught of fishes is peculiar to it this fact reappears in john chapter 21 where the circumstances of jesus standing on the shore in the morning twilight and the swimming of peter towards him are added these two circumstances are in matthew chapter 14 verse 22 and following and parallel passages metamorphosed into the act of walking on the sea on the part of jesus and of peter and at the same time a storm and its cessation on the entrance of jesus into the ship are introduced lastly in matthew chapter 8 verse 23 and following and parallel passages we have an anecdote single in its kind namely that of the stilling of the storm by jesus we come to a history for which a place is less readily found in the foregoing series in matthew chapter 17 verse 24 and following it is true that here again there is a direction of jesus to peter to go and fish to which although it is not expressly stated we must suppose that the issue corresponded but first it is only one fish which is to be caught and with an angle and secondly the main point is that in its mouth is to be found a piece of gold to serve for the payment of the temple tribute for jesus and peter from the latter of whom this tax had been demanded this narrative as it is here presented has peculiar difficulties which paulus well exhibits and which olhausen does not deny fritzsche justly remarks that there are two miraculous particulars presupposed first that the fish had a coin in its mouth secondly that jesus had a foreknowledge of this on the one hand we must regard the former of these particulars as extravagant and consequently the latter also and on the other the whole miracle appears to have been unnecessary certainly that metals and other valuables have been found in the bodies of fish is elsewhere narrated and is not incredible but that a fish should have a piece of money in its mouth and keep it there while it snapped at the bait this even dr schnappinger found inconceivable moreover the motive of jesus for performing such a miracle could not be want of money for even if at that time there was no store in the common fund still jesus was in capernaum where he had many friends and where consequently he could have obtained the needful money in a natural way to exclude this possibility we must with olhausen confound borrowing with begging and regard it as inconsistent with the decorum divinum which must have been observed by jesus nor after so many proofs of his miraculous power could jesus think this additional miracle necessary to strengthen peter's belief in his messiahship 
Hence, we need not wonder that rationalistic commentators have attempted to free themselves at any cost from a miracle which even Olhausen pronounces to be the most difficult in the evangelical history, and we have only to see how they proceed in this undertaking. The pith of the natural explanation of the fact lies in the interpretation of the word eurysis, thou shalt find, in the command of Jesus, not of an immediate discovery of a statter in the fish, but of a immediate acquisition of this sum by selling what was caught. It must be admitted that the above word may bear this signification also. But if we are to give it this sense instead of the usual one, we must, in the particular instance, have a clear intimation to this effect in the context. Thus, if it were said in the present passage, Take the first fine fish, carry it to the market, and there thou shalt find a statter. This explanation would be in place. As, however, instead of this, the word eurysis is preceded by when thou hast opened his mouth. As, therefore, no place of sale, but a place inside the fish is mentioned, as that on the opening of which the coin is to be obtained. We can only understand an immediate discovery of the piece of money in this part of the fish. Besides, to what purpose would the opening of the fish's mouth be mentioned, unless the desideratum were to be found there? Paulus sees in this only the injunction to release the fish from the hook without delay, in order to keep it alive, and thus to render it more saleable. The order to open the mouth of the fish might indeed, if it stood alone, be supposed to have the extraction of the hook as its object and consequence. But, as it is followed by, Thou shalt find a statter, it is plain that this is the immediate end of opening the mouth. The perception that, so long as the opening of the fish's mouth is spoken of in this passage, it will be inferred that the coin was to be found there, has induced the rationalistic commentators to try whether they could not refer the word stoma, mouth, to another subject than the fish, and no other remained than the fisher, Peter. But as stoma appeared to be connected with the fish by the word outu, which immediately followed it, Dr. Paulus, moderating or exaggerating the suggestion of a friend, who proposed to read antheurisis, instead of outu, a recise allowed outu to remain, but took it adverbially, and translated the passage thus, Thou hast then only to open thy mouth to offer the fish for sale, and thou wilt on the spot receive a statter as its price. But, it would still be asked, how could a single fish fetch so high a price in Capernaum where fish were so abundant? Hence, Paulus understands the words, Take the fish that first cometh up, collectively thus, Continue time after time to take the fish that first comes to thee, until thou hast caught as many as will be worth a statter. 
if the series of strained interpretations which are necessary to a natural explanation of this narrative throw us back on that which allows it to contain a miracle and if this miracle appear to us according to our former decision both extravagant and useless nothing remains but to presume that here also there is a legendary element this view has been combined with the admission that a real but natural fact was probably at the foundation of the legend namely that jesus once ordered peter to fish until he had caught enough to procure the amount of the temple tribute whence the legend arose that the fish had the tribute money in its mouth but in our opinion a more likely source of this anecdote is to be found in the much-used theme of a catching of fish by peter on the one side and on the other the well-known stories of precious things having been found in the bodies of fish peter as we learn from matthew chapter four luke chapter five and john chapter twenty one was the fisher in the evangelical legend to whom jesus in various forms first symbolically and then literally granted the rich draught of fishes the value of the capture appears here in the shape of a piece of money which as similar things are elsewhere said to have been found in the belly of fishes is by an exaggeration of the marvel said to be found in the mouth of the fish that it is the statter required for the temple tribute might be occasioned by a real declaration of jesus concerning his relation to that tax or conversely the statter which was accidentally named in the legend of the fish angled for by peter might bring to recollection the temple tribute which amounted to that sum for two persons and the declaration of jesus relative to this subject with this tale conclude the sea anecdotes end of section one hundred one